Chuck Kruger to come up here to introduce our visiting preacher this morning as he has more history with him than I do. So, Chuck. Uh, you earned a Master of Divinity degree from RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, and a Doctor of Ministry degree from Goring-Conwell uh, Theological Seminary. While in Ithaca, he served as a founding board president of Chesterton House, uh, Center for Christian Studies at Cornell. And this is similar to our own um, Michigan Christian um, Studies Center. And he also served on the board of the PCA Foundation. His in interests include the intersection of Christianity and the arts, and especially in literature and film. He remain, remains active in the New York State Presbytery, serving on the leadership committee. He and his wife Cheryl met in college. They have three sons and seven grandchildren. Well, Steve has been extraordinarily kind and pastorally patient. Sorry. Uh, to both Sharon and I. I want, didn't want to do that. And also to Greg and Nita McConnell, who are also visiting here this morning. What I wanted to say was publicly, on behalf of our two families, heartfelt thank you. Thanks. privilege to worship with you this morning. Um, we've, uh, we've kind of swelled your numbers a little bit. Uh, we're having a, a New Life Ithaca reunion here uh, with uh, Seth and the McConnells and of course uh, Chuck and Sharon. We still claim them as part of us. Uh, let's see. Oh, Michelle, yes, back there and Jeff and Heather and, and Tribe. Um, so this is kind of like uh, old home week and uh, it's lovely to be with the rest of you. Uh, but I hope you'll uh, allow us a particular enthusiasm for seeing these folks who are really dear to us and have been a part of our life together in our community in Ithaca. I do want to thank Jeremy and the session, uh, Chuck, for the, uh, extending me the privilege of uh, opening the word with you this morning. Uh, our text is a long text, so uh, normally I would have you stand, but uh, just keep your seat from John 9. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed. And he came home seeing. 
his neighbors, and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, no, I am the man. Well, then how were your eyes open, they asked him. He replied, well, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I washed, and now I can see. Oh, where is this man, they asked him. I, I don't know, he said. Well, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. And therefore, the Pharisees who asked him how he had received his sight, he said, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, oh, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. Well, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he sees? Well, we know he's our son, the parents answered. We know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that was why his parents asked him, said, he is of age. Ask him. Well, a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God and tell the truth, they said. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But the one thing I do know is that I was blind, but now I see. And they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He said, I've, I've already told you, but you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? That's funny. You can, you can laugh at that. That's a joke. <coughs> um. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, well, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you are seeing him. And he is the one speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This is God's word. Uh, one of my favorite Ithaca theologians is uh, Rod Serling. 
Some of you will know. In 1969, in one of his uh, Twilight Zone episodes, uh, which was entitled Eyes, uh, the episode features Joan Crawford as this bitter, angry woman living in her penthouse. She is blind. She's also extravagantly wealthy. And somehow she has found uh, a doctor who has claimed that he can perform surgery on her eyes to restore her health if she can find a pair of eyes to replace her eyes that don't work. And she has found some guy on the street who is willing for some exorbitant sum of money to sell her his eyes. And so the doctor performs the surgery and they do it in the evening so that uh, when she unwraps the bandages as she does, the, it will be gentle on her. And it, of course, there's a twist coming here because you know this is a Rod Serling story. She unwraps the bandages and she turns to look out the window at this marvelous sight across the city spread out beneath her, and at that very moment, a blackout falls upon the entire eastern seaboard, and there is nothing for her to see. And she rages, she's in fury, finally she falls asleep. She wakes up with the, the, the morning sun coming in the window, and she looks, and she stares into the sun, and once again is plunged back into blackness and blindness. This man in the story is, is healed, and when he woke up the next, next morning, he could open his eyes and see again. This is a, a chapter, this is a story about seeing, several different kinds of seeing, but I want to organize uh, my thoughts to you this morning under three pretty simple headings. Uh, the first is, Jesus sees. Secondly, we are blind. And thirdly, God is glorified. Jesus sees, we are blind. God is glorified. Now our text begins with what seems to be a throwaway line. Jesus was walking along and he saw a man blind from birth. Full stop. That is no small thing for Jesus to fix his eyes on someone. For our Savior to look upon someone. Because even in this very brief statement, Jesus looks upon and he knows his whole story. Here is this guy begging along the side of the street. He's lost in the crowd. Jesus sees him and knows this is a man blind from birth. He knows his story. And I, I want to make the very simple point here as we begin looking at this text. Is that Jesus sees you. Jesus fixes his eyes on you and he knows your story. In Genesis chapter 16, we have a fascinating event. Uh, Hagar has been cast out of the city. I mean, we read, you know, just out of the household, but, you know, you're living in the desert. You get thrown out of the tent. You're in the middle of nowhere. And, of course, if you know the backstory, you know, Abraham has been impatient, and he said, well, you know, maybe, maybe we should have a, maybe we should have the promised child through Hagar, and, let, and Sarah think, oh, that's a great idea, until Hagar gets pregnant. And then she, her wrath pours out on Hagar, and Hagar's driven out of the tent, and she's sitting out of the, the middle of the desert with no provision, no way to know what to do, and she prays. And for the first time in, in biblical history, she names God. 
The first time in an act of worship, this woman names God, and she prays to him, she speaks to him as the God who sees. And this is no seeing from a distance. This is a God who is seeing with the eyes of promise because he says, I see you, and in seeing you, I know that you are one that I will care for. I'm sending you back. It's not going to be easy, but I will keep my promise to you. I see you, and I will not forget you. You may think of just a few pages earlier from our text, the, the woman that Jesus meets in Samaria, she's there in the middle of the day because she's a, an outcast. She, she cannot be with the other woman. Uh, she's regarded as a sinner. But Jesus sits and talks to her. And he asks her, he says, go get your husband and come drink of this water of life. And she goes, I, I don't have a husband. And she goes, yes, I know. He knows her story. He goes, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And she runs. She's not ashamed by his knowing her and by his seeing her. And she runs to tell her friends, come meet the man who has told me the story of my life. <laughs> He's only put his finger on the thing that is most important in her life, her desire for love, her desire for a husband, her desire to belong that has been unmet her entire life. Or you may know that, that little fellow in the Gospels, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. <laughs> he climbed up in a sycamore tree to see the Lord. But of course, it's not the story is not about Zacchaeus seeing him, is it? It's about Jesus seeing, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. It's not about Zacchaeus seeing Jesus. It's about Jesus seeing him. Jesus passes along and looks up. He goes, hey, Zacchaeus, there you are. Come on down. Let's have lunch. These are, episodes are all echoing the words of the psalmist from Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts, you know when I go out, you know when I lie down, you know the words I speak even before they were on my tongue. Lord, you know me completely. Or I love the way Eugene Peterson translates it. I'm never out of your sight. And neither are you. Many of you have experienced hardship or hurt and you may feel invisible, you may feel forgotten it's hard, in, it's in this busy culture that we live in, there's nothing more pervasive than loneliness in the midst of that frenzy. And perhaps, I don't, when I get caught up in my work and I get focused, you know, Cheryl will tell me, uh, I feel invisible here. But our text is reminding us that the words of the Heidelberg Catechism are true. That I am not my own, that I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior who watches over me so that 
Not even a hair falls from my head apart from the will of my Father in heaven. I am uh, two years NED, thanks be to God, a, or no evidence of my cancer remains, but six months of chemotherapy pretty much robbed me of all of my hair, uh, and this wor these words from the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, quoting the scriptures, uh, meant quite a lot to me, as does this text. But I want to ask you, how do you know that God sees you? I mean, it's a great idea. I mean, three ways, I, th I think. First of all, this book tells you this is God's covenantal promise. And the one who, who speaks these words cannot lie. And he's the one who says to you now, I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And you know how many times that's repeated throughout scripture because we need to hear it again and again and again and again and again. But the Holy Spirit is also at work to penetrate our, our distractions and our busyness to, to nudge us and to remind us, I'm here, I'm with you. But we know that God sees us as we see one another. In the rhythm of our lives, we, we learn to slow down long enough so that we're able to say to each other, I see you. You are not lost in my sight. And in seeing you, I know you and I love you. So Jesus sees. But secondly, we are blind. Jesus uh, says in our text in verse 5, he says, I am the light of the world. Peter says he is the bright, he's the morning star rising in our hearts. Mary teaches us in her magnificent, sun, he is the sunrise visiting us from on high. Jesus in his first sermon from Isaiah 61 says, I am announcing the good news to the poor, to the blind, to the oppressed, to the enslaved. He's come to shine his light upon the world, shining his light so that in that light we might know him, that we might see him, but also shining that light so that we might see ourselves and know who we are. There's a tremendous irony here in the text, isn't there? Um, Jesus does this miracle, and he does it just, it, there's nothing sensational about it. He says, you know, put, I know it's a little weird, you know, put mud on your eyes and go wash, and voila, you're you can see. But he stands before the Pharisees, and I think if you're honest, you know, you, you, you look at the Pharisees and you say, what a bunch of idiots. These guys are so caught up in their legalism, they can't even see the, the magnificence of what Jesus did. They're blind. Yeah, but so are we. We do not see the glory of God. We are, are so caught up in, we are blinded by rage or by grief or by confusion or by doubt or by grief, by greed, by lust. And it's hard for us to see the glory of God in the world. It's hard to see the glory of God 
shining in the grace of the gospel. When the light of Christ shines upon us, we find ourselves in the same situation as the Pharisees, not seeing him. Um, but the problem of our, of our life is exposed. Augustine uh, described our condition as in curvata se, means we are curved in on ourselves. Think, think of curling up into a ball, like a feet, turn in the, into the fetal position. And when you are doing that, there is no place to look other than yourself. You're so focused on, only on, on yourself and you cannot look up and see. And so we have a way of underestimating our blindness and our, and our brokenness. Paul talks about this uh, in helpful ways in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talks about our weakness and our strength. He, he talks about weakness so that he might lead us to grace and the sustaining grace of God in the face of that weakness. Now he says, I've got this thorn in the flesh. And in God's infinite wisdom, he doesn't tell us what that thorn is because if he did, we'd just fixate on it and miss the larger application. It doesn't matter what the thorn is. It doesn't matter what he is struggling with and living with. Because you and I, if we are living in the light of Christ, if we're living in the, with the light of the gospel shining upon us, we see our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. Now, this isn't always sin. I mean, the, our weaknesses are certainly because of sin, because we live in a fallen world. I live with a vulnerability to anger. I, it's kind of ironic. I, I, people who know me think I'm a pretty jolly fellow. And I'm a frolic. You know, if you know German, frolic. That means we're the merry and merry Christmas. How can you be angry if you're Mr. Merry? But, I, but I'm vulnerable to anger. And I know those things that lead me in to that sin. And by God's grace, I, I learn how to walk in such a way, how to live in such a way, so that I experience something of an answer to our prayer that we just prayed, Lord, lead me not into temptation. But I, I know my vulnerabilities. I'm, I'm a heterosexual. I'm attracted to the opposite sex. What does that mean? That means I have the capacity to betray Cheryl. And I'm a fool if I, if I think that, that somehow I cannot go down that path. I suspect if statistics are, are uh, typical here, as they are most places, at least 50% of you, probably, probably men, you're in the grip of pornography in one way or another. Some of you know what it means to be set free from that grip and to live without its pull. But the light of the gospel shines upon you to know what your area of vulnerability is so that you may walk faithfully. Some of you 
they say, I, I'm an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink in 40 years. But by God's grace, I have, I have lived faithfully. I have lived soberly. And yet I know, I know where certain paths lead. And I lean hard on the grace of God to keep me from getting sucked in to that addiction and to that grip again. We need to see Jesus. I love the words of Richard Sibbs, my favorite Puritan pastor, in his description of Christ. He says, the very beholding of Christ is a transforming sight. We cannot look upon the love of God of, and of Christ in the gospel, but it will change us to be like God and Christ. For how can we see Christ and God in Christ, but we shall see how God hates sin, and this will tra transform us to hate it as God does, who hated it so that it could not be banished except by the blood of Christ, God-man. So seeing the holiness of God transforms us to be holy. When we see the love of God in the gospel and the love of Christ giving himself for us, this seeing will transform us to love God. And when we see the humility and obedience of Christ, when we look on Christ as God's chosen servant in all this, and as our surety and head, this seeing will transform us and create in us a similar humility and obedience to love our neighbors in the world. And if by beholding Christ we do not find our dispositions in some measure transformed, then we have not yet the eyes that the Holy Spirit requires to see him as he really is. As John tells us in his first epistle, when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And so our prayer is, Lord, I want to see Jesus. And lastly, uh, uh, God is glorified. Jesus sees us. We are blind. God is glorified. The text begins with the disciples asking this question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, that's an interesting question, that they're positing that he sinned in the womb. Okay, we're not going to talk about that this morning. Uh, you can deal with, ask Jeremy about that. I know he's capable of resolving that mystery for you. Um, ball's in your court, Jeremy. You're welcome. But think about what the disciples are asking. Now, uh, Ithaca is, uh, th those of you who are, have spent time in Ithaca, you know, I Ithaca, uh, Cornell is a big tech school. Uh, it, it exists to fix problems. And that's what the disciples are asking. They're, a bunch, they're, they're acting like a couple of engineers. Lord, we got this problem here. How can we make sure this never happens again? So, who sinned? This man or, or his parents? <laughs> of course, uh, Jesus says, uh, fellows, you, you are asking the wrong question. He says, this has happened so that God might be glorified. Now, the question for us as we put ourselves in the story. Am I willing to endure hardship? Am I willing to endure the brokenness of the world? Am I willing to endure things that are not supposed, the way they're not supposed to be, that will not be right until Christ stands again upon the earth and coi turns, co 
curls his toes into the soil of the world made new? Am I willing to, to live amid that so that Christ might be glorified, that God might be glorified? Now, I don't know what your life is like. Um, I mentioned that I've had cancer. I don't, I don't know how Cheryl and I have done in the midst of all that, but I pray that cancer was a gift to us that God might be glorified. I don't know what you have experienced. Some of you have been abandoned by people you love. Some of you have been treated unjustly by people that you know. Some of you have lived with disease. Some of you have, just go down the list. But the question facing us here, wh why, why do these things happen? Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on the theology underlying this, and I'm not going to exhaust that. I'm just going to skate lightly over it. Again, you know, Jeremy will give you the details. But I, I want to comment real briefly on the, on the contrast between sovereignty and providence. When we think of, of sovereignty, we think of God's power, usually. God decreeing things. He's the king, right? He's the sovereign. And the king does whatever he wills. No one stands in his way. And I, I think typically when we pray, that's the model that we, that we have in our minds when we pray. No, we, we want God to fix things. I'm sick. Make me well. I, I need a job. Fix it. I, I, I need a spouse. I need a husband or wife. Get me married. We want kids. Make it happen. We think of God zapping things. Well, I, I don't want for a moment. I, we should pray boldly. Newton says, large petitions to him bring. Yes, pray boldly. Don't be shy about asking God to heal us, about God to change things. He does that. And we also need to keep in mind God's providence. And that has to do not so much with his power, but with his purpose. And the purpose of God in creation and redemption is to complete what he started. To bring all that he has initiated to the end for which he created it and has redeemed it. And all that he has done, above all else, is for his glory. And the, so the question is, are, are we willing to endure the hardships of this life? Asking God to be glorified more than we want him to make our lives comfortable. Um, so our text, oh, many of you, uh, I mean, I have scars in my body from my cancer. I have this big, well, never mind. Um, many of you have scars from the difficult things that you've had to endure. Some of them are scars in your body, wounds. Some of them are scars upon your heart. 
I love the fact that when Jesus stands on the other side of death, when he stands in his resurrected body, in the first fruits of the world made new, he holds out his hands to Thomas and he says, touch my wounds. Here, put your hand in my side. This is the body that was wounded. This is the body that was killed, that was humiliated, that was degraded, so much so that anyone who looked at me said, is that even a man? This is that body. And Jesus continues to, to join us in that suffering. And the wounds, the scars that you bear are treasured by our Savior as he keeps his scars testimony that your wounds will not keep you from being whole. They will not keep you from being all that God has redeemed you to be. Well, our story ends. Um, the Pharisees throw the man out, and this is no small thing. It's to be thrown out of the synagogue is like Hagar, to be thrown out into the desert so they get out of the community. But Jesus finds him. Isn't that just like Jesus? Isn't that the thing that Jesus does? He goes out and he finds us. He comes after us relentlessly. And he stands before him and asks him the question. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who has been sent by the Ancient of Days to come and banish evil from the world, the one who has come to make things right, the one who has come to bring a reign of righteousness, justice, and peace. Do you believe in him? And the man says, who is he that I might believe in him? And Jesus says, you're seeing him. Your eyes are beholding him. Your ears are hearing his voice. In Matthew 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he tells us, he preaches that we, that you are the light of the world. You are a light bearer into the world of the glory and the presence of God. And as Jesus says, I am the light of the world, shining light so that people might know Christ. I am the light so that people might know who they are and be seen and understood. I want to leave you with these lovely words from Gerard Manley Hopkins. Everyone, everyone in Christ acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs, lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. I don't know whether you know the, the work of Lilia Strotter, I commend her to you. But she writes, take the very hardest thing in your life, the place of difficulty, outward or inward, and expect God to triumph gloriously in that very spot, just there, he can bring your soul into blossom.
Christ is being revealed in you. It's a, it's a costly process for that to happen. But Christ is being shown to be glorious. And may we commit ourselves to having his, our eyes opened that we might see him and live all of life for his glory. Amen.